the opposite. They were thinking they were defending the Sabbath, but themselves actually, uh, in opposing Jesus, were doing evil and bringing death, seeking to bring death, and actually working on the Sabbath by plotting to kill Jesus. This terrible, sad, stark contrast is where we were left at the end of our passage last week. This passage today that we'll be looking at is really a continuation of what went on. It follows on the heels of Jesus' rejection by the Pharisees. We follow this storyline and we watch Jesus' reaction to this violent opposition. What we're going to see, I believe, in this passage, what this passage teaches us is that though Jesus was rejected by the Pharisees, by others, though Jesus was rejected by many, he is the hope of the nations. That's the title of the message, Jesus' hope of the nations. Let's pray and ask God that we would encounter Jesus, the hope of the nations, this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is living and active. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are busy and active throughout the world, taking the truth of God's word and bringing it to light to people and changing lives, converting hearts, renewing believers, accomplishing your will. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are so active and that you're here with us today, O oh God. And we ask you, Lord, to speak to us. We ask you to speak through your word. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to minister to each and every one here, no matter where they may be, whatever may be going on in their lives, Lord, would you speak to them? Would you manifest your truth through your word to them? Would you bring life? For some, it might mean repentance and faith for the first time. For some others, it may mean repentance and a renewal of faith and believing you according to your promises. For others, it might mean encouragement. For others, it might mean a fresh commissioning to what you want them to do. Lord, whatever you have in mind, whatever our need is, we ask you to do it. We look to you. We wait on you. We thank you, Lord, that you are active. And so, Lord, we pray and ask that you would use me, use this message, bring the attention on you, O oh God. Through it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's look at verses 7 through 12. I think we have it to project as well. If you have a Bible in your hand, I encourage you to look right at your own Bible. It says in verse 7, following on from verse 6, where the Pharisees had plotted to kill him, it says in verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. God's word from Mark 3, 7 through 12. This past Wednesday, as many of you perhaps know, the Supreme Court overruled the Defense of Marriage Act. This was an act that defined marriage 
for the purpose of federal law as between a man and a woman. Whether or not you agree with the ruling in terms of what's proper for the federal government, there might be various opinions of that in this room even. The fact that the highest court would need to make such a decision is indicative of the very serious shift in worldviews that our culture is undergoing, really away from a biblical Christian worldview. Now, don't get me wrong, as I talk about this, uh, I believe the scriptures would strongly advocate compassion and love toward those with homosexual preferences. I think that would be clear. But also, the scripture is unequivocal in its opposition to any sort of sexual practice outside of monogamous heterosexual marriage, whatever it might be. And this recent Supreme Court decision can feel to some of us like a punch in the gut. For those who value God's ways and God's honor and God's blessing, really, for our overall culture, it can feel like the Christian cause has lost. It can feel like this is no longer the country that I knew. It can make us feel, it can make you feel, perhaps, like an unwelcome minority. But I believe this decision has some good sides to it. It's a call to action. It's a call to action to God's people in light of the shift in culture. It's a wake-up call. It says, wake up. There's something going on here. It's not life as you knew it. You can't make the assumptions that you did in the past about culture. And therefore, is an opportunity to rethink what we believe about the gospel, what we believe about culture, what we believe about our role in culture as Christians chance to rethink those things. As one pastor put it, it's time, quote, it's time we recognize we are no longer the moral majority and embrace our identity as the missional minority. I think that's well said. I think that's representative of the scriptures and the history of Christianity, actually. I believe the decision is a healthy thing for the church and its mission because it's a chance to rethink what we're about, to rethink what we're called to, and it's a chance to shine brighter as we walk in faith and the gospel and we live out biblical sexual ethics amidst the chaos that will only grow around us. Isn't this what the early church experienced? Isn't this the context where the early church thrived and was a powerful witness in contrast to the sexual chaos of the late Roman Empire? And I believe that the Word of God, God's Word to us, is totally competent, totally able to speak to us and to help us, to shape us, to empower us, to guide us, to encourage us in light of the trend that we're observing, the trends that we are observing. There's many places in Scripture we could go. There's many places I could go if I wanted to talk about the reality of the culture shifting and what we're called to do. But today's passage, actually, is just about perfect for us in light of what's going on this week, in light of what's going on in our culture. It's perfect for us, for we see in this passage Jesus just rejected by the Pharisees. We see that Jesus has been rejected by the authorities, by the people of influence in his society. 
and not just rejected, but they are plotting to kill him. And instead of Jesus somehow rolling over and giving up, he doesn't do that. He withdraws from them in their violence, yes, but he goes to a different location, and what we see are people from all around that area. People from all the nations, actually, around the area coming to Jesus. They are streaming in to get close to Jesus. And Mark puts this paragraph in the Word of God for the purpose of standing in contrast to the rejection that Jesus just experienced. The Pharisees might have rejected him, but the nations are streaming in to be close to him, to crowd in. There's a great crowd that comes and presses in on him. They want to touch him. They want to experience who he is. This passage teaches us that though he is rejected by many, Jesus comes as a gracious Savior for all nations. Though he is rejected by many, Jesus comes as a gracious Savior for all nations. And that's really what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about this passage in light of that, that he, though he's rejected by many, we'll talk about that. Jesus comes as a gracious Savior. We'll talk about that for all nations. Verse 7 says, Jesus withdrew his disciples to the sea. This verse, verse 7, is in light of verse 6, where it says the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. It's a response to this passage, this verse, verse 6. They plotted together how to destroy him, and, and we don't know what went on, but can you imagine? I mean, what, how do you plot together to destroy someone? What sort of things do you talk about if you want to plot with others to destroy them destroy them I, I don't even want to think about it their rejection of Jesus was was intense it was full of of resolve to destroy him the Pharisees rejected Jesus outright why did they reject him we talked about this last week why did they reject him? well the Pharisees uh, believe that the Sabbath and keeping the Sabbath uh, was really important and it is really important. But their particular views on keeping the Sabbath were very strict. And Jesus came actually as Lord of the Sabbath, as the one who has the right and the, and the knowledge and the power to speak about what the Sabbath is really about. And not only to speak about it, but to fulfill what the Sabbath is about. The Sabbath is about rest. The Sabbath is about enjoying the purpose of creation, enjoying fellowship with God worshiping and fellowship with God's people. That's, the Sabbath is a picture of that. and Jesus came to fulfill that. But the Pharisees had a very strict view of how one might uphold the Sabbath. That view was because that uh, what had happened in the history of Israel, we talked about this, was that they were sent into exile. And God says uh, at a number of places in the Old Testament, I sent you into exile, I sent you away because of your breaking of the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees understood that, well, we need, to, therefore, to keep the Sabbath. They didn't get that God was talking about their heart condition. The fact that their hearts were far from keeping the Sabbath. They wanted to live life on their own terms apart from God. They didn't want to live life trusting and depending and resting in God and looking to His rest. That was why they, they rebelled and were eventually punished, disciplined by God. 
But the Pharisees took it literalistically, really, is what ended up happening. And they thought, well, we need to make sure that we never break the Sabbath. So they came up with all these rules that were very strict. And Jesus came in, and he broke their rules. Now, he did that because he came as the fulfillment. He came to heal on the Sabbath because the Sabbath is about healing. It's about encountering God's healing and redemption. But they considered this as breaking of the Sabbath. And, and they considered that as a very serious offense that would get them in deep trouble with God. Somehow it would get them maybe sent away from, God's, uh, from their land, from God's promised land again. And so they were understandably opposed to Jesus. And in light of that explanation, you might just think, well, it's just a simple misunderstanding. Why didn't Jesus just explain, guys, you're not quite understanding the Sabbath properly. Let me give you a biblical theology of the Sabbath. We'll go through there and I'll help convince you that, you know, this is wrong and we'll just change your views. Well, there was something else at work besides a mere under misunderstanding. If you read the, the Gospels, you'll see that the Pharisees were not held as just misunderstanding the truth about Jesus. They were held as opposing Jesus. And Jesus considered them evil in that opposition. It wasn't just a misunderstanding. They were opposed to Jesus and therefore opposed to God. They wanted, they wanted religion on their own terms. They wanted life on their own terms. And, and they used their religious facade and, and activity basically to, to hide what was in their heart, which was life on their own terms. They wanted to, they wanted to shape life themselves. They wanted to find God their own way. They wanted to establish their own righteousness that they could somehow present before God and say, God, you owe me. They were totally off. They were evil in their twisting of God's law. They were evil in their twisting of the Sabbath. That motive is implied strongly through Scripture. So it was more than just a misunderstanding. We can look at the Pharisees and just think how bad these people were. How awful to have the Son of God, God in the flesh, right there before them and, and healing and doing miracles and somehow miss it. And then not only did they miss it, but they, they determined to oppose Jesus and to kill him. How could they have been so foolish? But the Pharisees are there in Scripture, not that we can look at them and think, think how foolish they are, but they, we could look at them and think, how foolish mankind is, how foolish I am. For the scripture is very clear that the Pharisees are really no different than you or me or any other human being. The book of Romans gives us some wonderful verses, uh, some hard verses to read because we like to think very highly of humanity. And we ought to think very highly of humanity for for men and women, boys and girls, are made in the image of God, and there's value in that. But that image has been terribly corrupted by sin. And so Romans gives us the, the bad news that we need to hear. Listen, uh, what Romans teaches us about humanity from chapter 1 and chapter 3 as well. I'm just going to read these verses. It says this in chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Pause there. That's what the Pharisees are doing. They're suppressing the truth. The, truth. the living truth is right there in front of them, and they want to suppress it. But Romans tells us that all mankind suppresses the truth. Mankind left to himself will live to suppress the truth. 
They will live in opposition to God's truth. They will find a way to suppress it. And it can be sometimes just outright rebellion, but other times very subtle ways of kind of getting around the truth, creating alternative systems that look really good and righteous and religious. They're actually just hidden efforts to suppress the truth. Continuing in Romans chapter 1, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So they, the Pharisees, are without excuse. So you and I are without excuse. God has clearly revealed himself, and yet we have determined to suppress the truth, to rebel against him. Whether it's a subtle way or an outright rebellious way, we do so. Later on, Paul, in this book of Romans, chapter 3, says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? Speaking of his, himself. No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then in Romans 3, as Paul prepares to start to turn the corner and talk about the good news, which we'll get to, he says this, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So when we read the story about the Pharisees rejecting Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised. They're suppressing the truth. They're doing what mankind, apart from God, does. They're doing what you and I, apart from God, would do as well. And so we shouldn't be surprised at the Pharisees, neither should we be surprised at people and cultures and countries that reject Jesus. We shouldn't be surprised. It's there in Scripture. Many people reject Jesus. We should be sad and we should be grieved, but not surprised. We, at one time, rejected Jesus too. If you are a believer now, there was a time when you weren't a believer. And in some way, you rejected Jesus. And for many of us, we came from cultures that, that though they may have looked good in certain ways, at the core, they, they rejected Jesus. They wanted the things of Jesus, maybe, but not Jesus himself. They wanted the goodness of Christianity, but not to confess Christ as Savior and Lord. So we all come from those backgrounds. That's the reality of mankind, the sad reality. And so we shouldn't be surprised, we shouldn't be shocked, and we shouldn't be proud either. When our culture, when people, when the Pharisees reject Jesus, we should recognize, you know what, I would be doing the same thing if God hadn't got a hold of me. And his getting a hold of us was not because we got a hold of him. It's because he worked in our lives and drew us and did all sorts of things. In a room this size, uh, there would be story after story of ways that God worked to get our attention, to turn us from going on that track that we would have followed left to ourselves. So, 
thank God. Thank God that he works and he saves sinners who would be just like the Pharisees otherwise. So let us not be surprised. Let us not be shocked. Let us not be proud when our culture drifts. Let us recognize this is the reality. This is mankind. This is what the scriptures teach us about mankind. This has been the history of mankind. This has been the context of the church of Jesus Christ. This has been the context of the people of God throughout all of history. The Old Testament as well as a testimony to the people of God living amidst people who reject him. There's more to the story though than just that. Thank God. Is more of the story than just the fact that people reject him. But, but that is so important for us to understand. And it's so important for us to understand that he is rejected by many. But he comes as a gracious Savior. That's the good news. He comes as a gracious Savior. And he's undaunted in this mission to be a gracious Savior. And he's glorious in it. He's glorious in it. His response to the Pharisees is not to kind of march into their homes and, and just start swinging a sword or something or whatever. He doesn't, he doesn't kind of berate them in front of everybody. He doesn't, he doesn't go resort to violence. He doesn't resort to political machinations of some way I'm going to try to get in here and change this. He doesn't do any of those things. He doesn't even at this point confront them. And later on, he does confront them, but it's only verbally. What does he do here? He withdraws. He withdraws. It says Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. He, he left. He left this place where there was a hotbed of controversy. He withdrew. He withdrew to the sea. And, and if you read the story, he continues to withdraw from the Pharisees' opposition until the time that he's ready to confront it. And then he confronts it verbally, Matthew 23 and elsewhere talks about that, but he does not confront it physically. Matter of fact, when they assert their opposition to him, their rejection to him, he submits to it. In other words, their plot to kill him succeeds. He comes meekly. He comes humbly. He comes as a gracious, gentle Savior. He comes to rescue others. He comes to rescue the weak and the hurting, and the wounded. And so this passage is a picture of that. Jesus withdraws. He withdraws to the sea, and what happens? People stream in from the nations to get near him, to get around him. They come in, and they want to press in. They want to touch him. They want to be there with him. And he comes as a gentle Savior in Matthew chapter 12, a parallel verse as it speaks about this passage. It's no wonder that Matthew picks up on this and quotes from the book of Isaiah, this prophet Isaiah had prophesied hundreds of years earlier about a promised leader who would come and he would come and he would meekly come, gently come and he would come to rescue the hurting. This is what Matthew says in the parallel passage of Matthew 12, 15 to 21. You can read along on the screen or in your Bible says, Jesus, aware of this, what had happened with the Pharisees, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. And then Matthew says this, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, 
and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Jesus comes to fulfill this passage from Isaiah. He comes to bring justice. He comes to bring God's righteousness, his goodness. He comes to bring the gospel. He comes to be the gospel, to live out the good news, to fulfill the good news. He comes to offer himself to rescue others, to bring justice to the Gentiles. It says he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor, anyone, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He doesn't come loud and obnoxious, but gentle and withdrawn. And it says a bruised reed he will not break. He will come to the broken. He won't break them. He won't bring judgment. He brings hope. He brings healing. He comes gently. He comes to the smoldering wick, the one whose life of faith is just about to go out and he doesn't quench that smoldering wick. He brings it to flame. He comes to rescue and restore and deliver. This is Jesus. This is God. This is who God is. This is God's character. Merciful and gentle and patient. Coming to the brokenhearted. Gracious. There's a story I love about Abraham Lincoln. Despite his busy schedule during the Civil War, he would visit hospitals to go and care for and comfort the wounded. And on one occasion, there was a young man there who was near death. And President Lincoln asked, is there anything I can do for you? And the soldier said, please write a letter to my mother. He was uh, President Lincoln was unrecognized by the soldier, so he sat down and he wrote what the young man told him to say. The letter read, My dearest mother, I was badly hurt while doing my duty, and I won't recover. Don't sorrow too much for me. May God bless you and Father. Kiss Mary and John for me. The young man was too weak to go on. So Lincoln signed the letter for him and then added this postscript written for your son by Abraham Lincoln. Asking to see the note, the soldier was astonished to discover who had shown him such kindness. Are you really the president, our president, he asked. Yes, was his quiet answer. Is there anything else I could do? Asked the president. The young soldier feebly replied, Would you please hold my hand? I think it would help to see me through to the end. And so the 16th president of the United States sat there gently, kindly, holding the hand of this young man as he passed on. I love that story. I love it because of the kindness and compassion of Abraham Lincoln, but I love it even more because he's the president. He's a president of the United States, and yet he takes time to come in and write a letter anonymously until he told who he was, and then to sit with this young man. How much more do we love? Should 
should we love, must we love the Savior. Though God of the universe, though holy beyond comprehension, He comes and lays His life down. He comes gently. He comes for the broken. He comes for the hurting. He comes according to Philippians 2 where it says, Though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He's a gracious Savior. 1 Peter says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued and trust in himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Instead of condemning us, he atoned for our sins. Instead of punishing off us, He offers complete forgiveness and reconciliation. He offers Himself. He doesn't respond to the threats of the Pharisees in anger and in kind, but instead gives Himself. He withdraws from a confrontation and gives Himself to others, ultimately culminating in giving Himself up on the cross for any and all who would turn to him, turn from self-effort, turn from sin, and trust him. And the picture here is of Jesus giving himself. He withdraws, and he gives himself to others. He demonstrates mercy and kindness. He heals. He drives out demons, and the crowd stream in to be with him. They stream in to touch him, and it's a fantastic scene. A fantastic scene here as the crowd, a great crowd, it calls this crowd twice. A great crowd that was so great that they pressed in to Jesus and there was concern that he would be crushed. The crowd was so great. Those who just wanted to touch him, just to touch him to be healed. And he, and he was driving demons out. Can you picture what was going on? Can you picture what, what the crowd looked like? People calling out, probably crying out to Jesus. Demons crying out as they're delivered people pressing in and the crowd is so dense I think we have a, a picture just to show what it might have looked like that Jesus had to get in a boat to get away from the crowd and not be trampled it probably looked a lot like that now we'll learn later on as we continue in Mark that he went in a boat in these sort of situations not just to get away from the crowd but to teach the because he knew they needed something even better than physical healing, even better than deliverance from demons. They needed to hear about the kingdom of God. They needed to come to him as Savior and Lord, and so he longed to teach them, and he would do this. He came to give himself. Though rejected by many, he comes as a gracious Savior for all nations. And that's the picture here as well. This crowd came from all over. It's not without purpose that Mark notes this here. 
He wants to give us a picture of the worldwide influence of Christ, that though he's rejected by many, though the Pharisees reject him and miss him, there's lots who don't. There's lots who perceive who he is, and they want him. Now they, they're going to come to a better understanding in time of who he is, but they want Jesus to come and be who he is, though he's rejected by many. And so they stream in from all sorts of countries. They come from Galilee. That's the province right there. They come from Judea to the south, and Jerusalem, the capital. And then Idumea, which is south of there. And many of these countries are, are full of not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. People that would not have perhaps known much about the scriptures and Jesus. So from Idumea they come, south of Judea. And from beyond the Jordan to the east, and from around Tyre and Sidon. These are places where there are Gentiles. And they come streaming in. This crowd comes, I think we have a map to show, Brennan. This crowd comes from all over these nations, streaming in be near Jesus. This massive influx is a contrast to the rejection by the Pharisees. And it might be easy for us reading verse 6 of chapter 3 to think, oh boy, Jesus failed. Man, if he had just got the Pharisees on his side. And they were powerful. They were connected. They were wealthy. They ran the politics. If he just got the Pharisees he would have had it. He would have been able to do what he needed to do. And we might read that verse, verse 6, and think, what? This is failure. But then Mark gives us verse 7 through 12 to say, no, 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 no. The Pharisees may have rejected him. And the Pharisees and leaders throughout history do reject Jesus at times. Many, many reject him. But others come streaming in to him. The nations come to Jesus. He is the gracious Savior for the nations. This is so instructive for us. In a time like this, as we watch our culture shift, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be daunted. We should not be discouraged. Though many reject him, he is the gracious Savior for all nations. He is still about his work. He will continue to be about his work in our nation in our neighborhoods, in our community, around us, and to the nations. He will still be at work. He will still be drawing people to himself. They will still come streaming in to be near Jesus, to find him as Savior and Lord. His work is undaunted. So let us not define ourselves by some picture of failure that's not God's picture of failure. Let us define ourselves by the Scripture, by this passage today and the many other places in Scripture that call us to re remember His mission that He's undaunted in fulfilling. Revelation chapter 5, I love this verse, chapter 5, verse 9. It says, For you were slain, speaking of Jesus, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Every tribe and language and people and nation. He ransomed people for God. When he died on that cross, his blood paid for people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Their redemption is guaranteed by the price that was paid. When Jesus' blood is paid for you, you cannot escape the redemption that is yours. Now, there's God's timing. At some point, by his Holy Spirit, he's going to open your eyes up to see what is yours in Christ. But it was already paid on the cross. He ransomed people for God. 
from every tribe and language and people and nation. Their redemption is guaranteed. The work of reaching the nations is guaranteed by the work of the cross. And so we can go forth with confidence. And he's at work. He's at work all around us. There are many, many believers in our country. And God is using some of what's going on to reshape us and refine us in understanding who we are and how we're to serve. We've gotten, I believe, fat and lazy in many ways. God's using the shifts that are going on to get us to rethink who we are and what this gospel mission is. And there are many brothers and sisters throughout the world who, who understand that and who are very active. And so there's wonderful work going on. 10% of China, as high as 10% of China, knows Christ. There's a work that's gone on that's fantastic there. They expect 400 million Christians in China by the year 2040. 400 million Christians. Think about that. Think about the impact. 22% of Brazilians are believers in Christ through the gospel. 29% of South Korea. Generation, well, three generations ago, it was almost nothing. Nigeria has gone from 21% to 48% Christian. Conversions are happening uh, at a tremendous rate in Vietnam. I think, I think in the past was 10 or 20 years, is a 600% growth in the church in Vietnam. They're streaming into Jesus. The gospel's being preached. God's people are shining for him, and they're streaming in still. So take heart. Take heart when we see others rejecting Jesus, when we see our culture perhaps rejecting Jesus and his truth. Take heart. He has his sights set on his people throughout the nations. If the band could come up as we close. Let us not let the rejection of the Pharisees or our culture or our neighbor or family member discourage us. God rules over all, and he is determined to rescue many, many people. Abraham was promised that his descendants would be as numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. That's countless. I think it's billions of people. That promise will be fulfilled. This passage today reminds us of this fact, that though many reject Jesus, he is a gracious Savior for all nations. He is a gracious Savior for countless So let us continue with the work we're called to do. Let's continue to live our lives in the gospel. Let us not be surprised by the culture or by others who reject Christ, at least temporarily. Let us be undaunted in our task to live in the gospel. Let us be undaunted as a church, family, as we love one another, as we center on Christ and his gospel and as we love our community, to shine in a dark world. To shine as a gospel-saturated, outwardly-focused counterculture that offers a refuge and an oasis to the chaos around us. To be a city within a city. To do what the church has done for a long time be God's people. Let us take heart and continue and not be surprised. Continue in our mission. Let us shine and let us remember the truth of this passage. Though he is rejected by many, Jesus has come as a gracious Savior 
for all peoples. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the gracious Savior for all the nations.